Okay. Yeah, we got uh, we got Alan on the phone here. Let's uh, hook that in. Because then I'm going to have to do the intro. Can you still hear me there? Sure. Okay. Here's a normal. Have you ever heard? Have you ever heard my show, Alan? I'm not sure. Uh, good politics would say yes. I always listen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care if you've never heard it before in your life. Doesn't bother me. I don't care. Well, lucky you. I don't think I have. <laughs> okay. Here's here's the uh, uh, new wacko intro here. If it works. There the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain is also pure information. Are we well uh, conditioned here? Yes. interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. Okay, that's about um, as long as we want to have that playing. It's uh, Radio Mysterioso here for uh, October. Hey, Alan, what is today? Uh, it's uh, the 18th. Yeah, 18th of 2015. Uh, let me turn that down. There we go. The last time I... Well, I've never talked to you before. I don't think I've talked to you ever in my life. I, I think we've had some exchanges online, if that counts, yeah. which is a subject of its own. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, now you've got me following Plan 9 from Outer Space. That's <laughs> how, am I, how am I going to top Ed Wood, you know? I, I don't know. See, this, is, this already establishes you as somebody who really should be on the show because you already know who that is. Yes, so, I even I even know, and I predict ticks in Tennessee. That's actually a real quote from what's his name, the, <laughs> from this, Criswell, 
Criswell, the physic. Well, I worked for five years, labored for five years at sub-minimum pay for the Psychic Friends Network. So Criswell, <laughs> eat your heart out. Well, actually, his heart has already been eaten out, but that's another story. Yes, he's buried in the um, Valhalla Brothers uh, – Pierce Brothers Valhalla Cemetery in Burbank. He has a little tiny – I guess his ashes are in there – all it says is uh, Criswell predicts and birth and death dates. That's it. Mm, well, if he predicted his birth and death dates, he's doing okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I was going to do an intro, and then somebody told me, hey, you know what? You should listen to, and I didn't listen to all of it, but you should listen to the interview he did with uh, Adam Gorightly a couple years ago. And uh, I, I started researching some background so I could give you a proper intro, but I figured, you know what? I'm going to steal straight off Adam Go Rightly and use his intro. <laughs> well, theft is the nature of the Internet, so why not radio? Go yeah. for it. Here it is. Come on, Adam. Our guest today is Alan H. Greenfield, an American <laughs> occultist, ufologist, writer, editor, and Gnostic bishop. Greenfield is both a student and an authority on unusual phenomena. A past member of the British Society of uh, Psychical Research and the National Investigation. He's reading Wikipedia. Yep. <laughs> yes, he is. He has twice been. <laughs> yes, he is. And the, the Wikipedia is not noted for its uh, sobriety or something. Borderland Science Research Associate. <laughs> he has personally conducted a number of on-site UFO abduction investigations. Works by Mr. Greenfield on... Occult topics Doctor, include Doctor the cipher of the Euphonauts, Adam, the story you, you of traitor, the you. Of Light, which was uh, one of the few sources of information on the uh, Hermetic Brotherhood of Light. Also, the complete rite of Memphis, which is the only comprehensive single volume 40 seconds left. of an Egyptian rite Freemasonry. In addition, the true history of Wicca, this, which is an ongoing essay project, uh, which was included in Richard Metzger's anthology from Disinformation's The Book of Lies in 2003, and more recently, The Roots of Modern Magic, 1700 to the year 2000, published by our good friends at Minutius Press. An avid speaker on subjects related to UFOs and the occult, especially the Order Templi Orientis and Thelema, he has appeared in the media and at several conferences as guest speakers. We welcome now Pa Allen Greenfield. There we go. Hi there, I'm Jewish. Bishop is a kind of a tricky title, and Wikipedia isn't the best way to introduce me, but I'll accept it because Adam is one hell of a guy. Yes, he is. A uh, good friend for a long time, and I figured he's, he's probably listening. I, I figured I'd get him uh, riled up right at the beginning of the show. Yes, well, I probably referred him to the Wikipedia piece, but I always say, you know, I have no control over what they put there, and what they don't put there is more interesting than what they do. But uh, Usually. All, all of that will do. Yeah, it's well, it's, it's true. You know, the uh, it's supposed to be open source, but the reality is anything that's offbeat or like alternative medicine, it, it, it's predictable that they're going to take the very, very orthodox side. Uh, so... Um, they're, they're not my cup of tea. Actually, I'm drinking ginger tea right now, so I probably am talking too fast. 
What yeah. was the question? <laughs> yeah. No question yet. I don't know what the question is. I have no idea. The, the listener sent it a bunch. I had a few, and you sent me some because I said, what do you want to talk about? So you sent me a few. Uh, what I did remember the first um, when I first uh, thought, hey, great, be a great idea to have Al on the show was, did you not hang out with um, uh, Mosley and Beckley and all those people on the East Coast in the '60s and the during the, that period of UFO study? Oh God, yes, those were my were my droogies. Those were my pals. Those were <laughs> my guys. And Beckley still is. We just, um, in fact, we did a program together at the 50th, I say 50th anniversary of the Congress of Scientific Ufologists National UFO Conference, which was held in Cleveland in, um, in uh, June. And uh, everybody other than me got really old. I don't know what happened. But <laughs> they all looked, you know, like they were ready to kick it, but... Uh, <laughs> Of course, I, I generously helped him into his room, and we did we did a program which I don't remember much about because uh, national UFO conferences were sort of that way, you know. <clears throat> yeah, well, they they tried to revive them for a little while. I think um, Lisa Davis was doing them, and I think she she or somebody's going to do one again, or they keep saying they're going to in the next year or so. Going, so uh, yeah, yeah, that was announced at the reunion. So it's okay, like, okay. We were sort of, you know, the old generation uh, uh, saying how much we had learned and how little the rest of the world had learned. And then we find out that the <laughs> lady that sort of dropped the ball after Jim Mosley uh, unwisely, may he rest in peace. He was my close, close friend. Um, in fact, we were neighbors for a while in Key West during oh, wow. a, um, a strange period of my life. Um, but in any case um, – he passed the torch to this lady, and yeah, she was going to do it in L.A. every year, blah, 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 blah. And I think it lasted two years, and then she, you know, didn't even close it down. It just went. So we sort of – she had control. So if she's starting it again, wonderful. I'm been on the board since like day one in 1963. I, I came up with the idea whilst staying with my parents at the um, – uh, Grove Park Inn in Asheville, North Carolina. And is it a coincidence that Asheville is now a psychic center? I think not. I think uh, was it that ba- that way back then, or is it uh, it's a, has it become such uh, in the v- no, intervening? No. It was a snobby retreat for wealthy uh, people from the south to have a short vacation. Oh, okay. Which, which is why my parents liked it. <laughs> And they always got me a separate room, and they didn't have any separate rooms, so they put me in a suite. And I was staring at the ceiling thinking of whatever mischief I could do at that point, and I thought, wow, we could have an indoor UFO convention. Mm-hmm. I know. I'll call Hilberg in Cleveland and con him into running it there, and that way I can take credit, and they can run the convention. And we'll get Jim Mosley and Tim Beckley, and it was it went from there. And Gray Barker by recording, I think, in 1968. Well, actually, Gray um, was at most of the early conventions. He wasn't at the first, but uh, he was at the second and for many years thereafter, all the way up until right before he passed on, mysteriously. Because anybody in ufology at any age, when they die, it's they die mysteriously. Yes? Yes, of course. They have to. I mean, it's, 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 it's the only way they can go. 
Gray called me at the giant saucer show, which is what the 1967 convention was called in New York. <laughs> it was the, the biggest ever. I mean, it started out National UFO Conference, but as Mosley spent more and more money on it, I think it was $10,1967. It just turned into the giant saucer show. Anyway, in the middle of the night, I, my phone rings in my room, and uh, I picked it up, and uh, it's Gray Barker, and he said, well, Frank Edwards came up with a really good excuse for not being here. And I said, really? What is it? He died. <laughs> I said, well, the nerve of that guy. You know, I never liked him anyway. But uh, and the funny thing is I later found out that his last words were, Mary, I have the strangest feeling. <laughs> yeah, that's better than I'm not feeling so good or <laughs> – yeah. yeah, or uh, – Hand me a Bible. I need loopholes. Um, <laughs> I think the aliens got Frank so that he couldn't come and tell the truth at the convention. That's Although what they at do the with 1967 everybody. convention, the truth ranged from Dr. Condon, who was in the audience, all the way over to, oh, let's see, half of the contactees and the love candidate for president, uh, the late Mr. Abalafia. Never heard of him. What do you mean the love candidate? Uh, he ran on the nudist ticket in 1968, oh, saying, man. "We have nothing to hide." It was. Uh, <laughs> it was. You have to keep in mind that this was uh, June 24th, 1967, mm -hmm. the summer of love. That's right. You couldn't get and away from it. We had we had the beginnings of the the hippie uh, outsur uh, uh, upsurge. Uh, right there at the convention, along with more conventional people, Howard Minger was too conservative for the convention. I mean, he was there, but it was like, you know, Minger that was, was old hat. The, the naked guy was getting a lot more attention. And it was um, um, just uh, 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 the amazing Randy spoke. That was it during his pro-UFO days. Uh, uh, he yeah, came, he, we discussed this. We wanted to talk about what uh, James Randy was like because he would appear on the panel on Long John's show over and over, and he wasn't. His stance was not so. Uh, 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 what's the word? Uh, uh, Hardline as it was extreme later, and is still now. What was he like then? Uh, Personality-wise, he was uh, the same, but you know, under ninety. Uh, and um, let's see, he uh, he got off the plane with a pistol in his pocket because he was fresh from the Nazca lines and uh, <laughs> um, said, uh, I'm going to do I'm going to expose Ted Sirius. So Gene Steinberg and I went up to his hotel room and he said, I'm going to show you how Sirius does it. He was the photographer uh, for right. those who might not remember or might not have even been born or who don't want to remember in any case. So I think Ted was for real, by the way. But uh, anyway, so so Randy, who was a and still at that time a professional stage magician, not a professional skeptic as as he is in his uh, years of infirmity. Um, oh, he might sue us. Well, never mind. Uh, He's not going to sue us. <laughs> if he gets served, let me know. I've, I've got friends in high places, you know, not on this planet, of course. <laughs> but anyway, so so Randy said. Here's how he does it. Take a picture. And he uh, does a flash, and, and uh, Gene says, gee. And I saw, said, uh, Randy, you palmed a little light. And he looked at me like, eh, you. <laughs> well, 
if I figured it out that quickly and people were, you know, standing on all, over and over with Sirius, working him over basically while he was drunk and, and uh, taking these thoughtographs, uh, Randy should have dropped that. But the next morning on the Today Show, the Today Show on NBC, yep. which was the program in the morning for right. those people who get up in the morning, he showed it again to the camera. Like, you know, like it hadn't been something that I had spotted. I mean, I mean that should have killed it right then and there, it, uh, whatever it was in the way of – and that's the way Randy sort of operates. And yet he took us out to his um, uh, place in New Jersey because he was still unpacking his stuff from his uh, Peruvian expedition, and uh, which I think Mosley had inspired. And uh, Yeah, it's like what the hell was Randy doing in Peru? Was he down there grave robbing too? No, he wasn't grave robbing, but, but Mosley probably said, you ought to do something on the Nazca lines for the giant UFO show. And he said, OK. So he goes down and he <laughs> films Nazca lines and, uh, you know, did not say anything in his talk, which had, drew about two or three thousand people. I mean, it was a, you couldn't count them because the, they, they basically were breaking in doors that uh, I mean, it was a huge convention and the star of the moment, uh, Roy Thinnis was was there. So it yeah. was Ooh, ah, stars. Yep. The invaders are coming, you know, so th all of that was going on. And uh, uh, Randy did a very straight talk saying the Nazca lines were fine. And Mosley mumbled to me, you know, if you stand on those hills above nazca you can see all the lines just fine you don't need to be in an airplane or a ufo and i said oh that's interesting <laughs> that was the sort of thing that mosley would say he he actually was a believer um but he, well he was a believer in the 4d theory which is sort of a variation of what i think is going on not the extraterrestrial thing but uh yeah but he always was highly skeptical and i don't think I ever read a fiction book in his life he was a fact freak uh people say things about mosley and barker and now that they're dead i can tell all but the truth is they uh the hoaxes that they did were mostly very very uh tame adolescent things and the the kind of things that they're credited with you know hiring men in black and uh and all sorts of really dangerous stuff. Uh, the only time they did anything that was even remotely dangerous was uh, the Straith letter, and that's because they used State Department stationery. And yeah. when they stopped to think about it, uh, they broke up the typewriter and hid pieces of it in the walls, and that was <laughs> – Yeah, <laughs> that uh, that's what Mosley told me. He, he said that Barker got very nervous, and he broke up the typewriter and hid it in different walls and construction sites around Clarksburg. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. And uh, I, I think that shows that they were they were willing to make uh, uh, prank phone calls. They did that with me once, and, you know, I thought, oh, this is Mosley and Barker doing a prank phone call. <laughs> it sounded sort of like Adam's introduction. I was doing an all-night sky watch in Atlanta. It was one of my experiments with – do UFO flaps come about or do they happen because you call attention to the sky? And whenever I did a citywide sky watch, in those days, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution would run a classified ad for it. There were always good sightings, not lights in the sky, good sightings. Um, so I concluded they're always there. It's just sometimes people look and if it makes the, the papers or the television or whatever, that's when you get a – what seems to be a flap. It's just, you know, a constant 
expanded phenomenal. awareness because of well, not even awareness, but people's brains are suddenly tuned to see certain things because one per- it's like a um, somebody turns on a switch. I turned on the switch and they saw the stuff. You know? <laughs> no fakes. And uh, one guy was calling and it was obviously he was watching Venus. And I um, said, sir, I, I mean, I got calls all night long. I made the mistake of giving my home phone number. Which oh, was- what's wrong with you? Yeah, I'm, well, this was 1960 something, and I was young, and it was my parents' house. It was their nickel, as Mosley would say. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, so uh, this guy says, and it was, it, and when I moved, it moved, and when I stopped, it stopped. So it was intelligent. I said, no, sir, that was the planet Venus. Uh, see, in that position in the sky, if you move, it appears to move. If you stop, it's stationary in the sky, more or less, uh, relative to the Earth. And he pauses for a minute and he says, I'm a veteran, which is the kind of non sequitur that one runs into. <laughs> How dare well, you question me? I, I, uh, I served yeah. my country. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm sure, you know, he was deeply insulted. I was just trying to tell him what he'd seen. But uh, yeah. I don't make that mistake anymore. I, uh, I assume that they're all real and that they're all um, strange. Have you um, – oh. I know what I wanted to ask. You said, among other things that Mosley and Barker did, what else did they do besides the straight letter? And I think I think uh, Tim Beckley told me about one where they sent a guy dressed up as a man in black to freak out somebody. But are there other ones people have not heard of? Come on, let, well, let's reveal a couple here for the first time. Some of their hoaxes. The worst of them never got any publicity at all. Mosley told me that back in his grave robbing days in Peru – um, and he, in fairness, he was a treasure hunter. He was not robbing modern graves. He was robbing Inca and pre-Inca uh, uh, sites, sites yeah. and, which was illegal, but nevertheless uh, not quite the same thing as grave robbing because uh, I don't know. It's it, it, archaeologists do the same thing, and it's considered to be uh, legitimate because. They've been very long dead, and their civilization is gone, so they're not any mourners. You know, that, at least that's the rationale for it. So right. Mosley told me that he uh, and some of his, uh, as he called them, ghouls, that's local people that were hired to help him dig, uh, made a big circle in the, in the grass that was UFO-shaped and burned it with gasoline. He said it was a bad moment for ufology. But nobody ever noticed it, so nothing happened. <laughs> but but let me tell you how strange it is and led me to the notion that, that ufologists become part of the phenomena. And this is a yes. story that's this first is of all. Part of hired, some of the questions I was going to ask. Go right ahead. Uh, the hired uh, – uh, Beckley and I have a difference of opinion. He says that the guy that showed up that I took a picture of at the – uh, I think it was at the height of the um, uh, Mothman thing. So it must have been 1969's convention, which we had in Charleston, West Virginia. Oh, a, perfect. Uh, a, a no alcohol town, which was <laughs> put a damper on the convention. What? Not- How can you have a UFO convention and no booze? That's ridiculous. Well, they, they, they had a catch. Uh, you could join their club, their, their bottle ah, club. yeah. For the weekend, and uh, it, the the bottle club oddly resembled a hotel bar. You know, it was, it was <laughs> strange. It was in the hotel, and it was 
you know, exactly like it. But anyway, this guy was following us around, and he followed us across the street to a restaurant, and I took his picture. And uh, Barker apparently told Tim uh, at some point that he had hired somebody to do that. The only thing is the, the, the sequel, because I got this guy's picture, is first of all, after I took his picture, I mean, he was so shocked. He ran around a corner. It was on a Sunday, Sunday in Charleston, West Virginia in the 1960s. Uh, as my father used to put it, you could fire a cannonball in downtown and not hit anybody. It was nobody on the streets. Right. He turned a corner. I must have been one second at most after him. There were no doors to the side. He was gone. That's very hard to attribute to somebody that Gray had hired. I mean, even if it had been Randy, that would be cool quite a trick you know yeah and uh, this was a um and the the, the punchline is uh somebody saw the photo which i i don't like to interject my own very minor experiences into thing if there weren't 20 witnesses i probably would have never done it but about five years ago i decided well i'm going to release this picture and you know tell the story of it um People saw the picture and they said, yeah, I saw that guy and it's same age, but it was in 2004, 2008, 2012. Well, Barker isn't hiring people now <laughs> unless he's got more powers than, than I think that he does. And um, how could the guy stay the same age? It's, it's clearly a man in black prototype. Now, what that means is – you know, much more complex question, but it's not yeah. not one of the things that Barker did. That was also over his budget. They mainly did prank phone calls. Uh, I think they drove John Keel uh, crazier than he was because they, <laughs> they, they knew where he was because when he was doing research – in the field, uh, especially during that period, with, which you know led to Mothman prophecies, yeah. you even see it in the in the movie version. You know, he's constantly getting phone calls from Indrid Cold, who knows exactly what he's doing. Well, that's you know Gray standing in a phone booth outside the the building, or Gray and Jim. Usually, they'd get together and get really, really, really <laughs> drunk, and in later years. Drunk and uh, herbalized, yeah. and then they would get the strange idea to do, you know, do these pranks. And Keel was an easy target because, while he was a you know fair to middling reporter, he was also a credulous person. And uh, so, a lot of the phone calls uh, you have to separate out as probably Barker, Mosley, or just Barker hoaxes but some of the things you know that are attributed actually scaring people or whatever they it's just not it wasn't their style they were not neither one of them were cruel or mean-spirited people that not at all um uh, mosley was a, a very liberal-minded person and barker was a, a gay guy living in a small town in west virginia yeah and and had even been arrested once for soliciting uh, a cop apparently so he had to you know he, he was in a delicate situation we're talking about not now we're talking about in the 1950s right. and 60s and 70s he was not going to go way out on a limb uh, on anything and didn't um these were more or less jocular things the barker mosley feud was a fake and there are little subtle ones like if the number 69 came up um, you would see a little M in the corner of the page that it was on. And that M stood for Mosley, and it was some kind of uh, internal 
uh, sexually explicit joke that was only exactly known to both of them. Issue number <laughs> 69 of Saucer News. Oh, God. The, the issue number was printed in big red letters on the on the cover, which was, you know, not true of 68 or 70. So, yeah. uh, you know, it was just the sort of thing that has a kind of adolescent ring now, but was probably a little bolder back in the day. But it's, you know, in terms of, of, of uh, anybody that they were out to fool, it wasn't uh, uh, the public or the media. It was like Laura Mundo, a follower of George Adamski, who right. uh, mostly not only detested – but he detested for really good reasons that had nothing to do with his uh, UFO experience, which is that he was a raving anti-Semite, and Jim was anything but. But Jim's father had been a famous anti-Semite. General George Van Horn Mosley was yeah. part of a circle of anti-Semitic uh, uh, people, the Gerald L. K. Smith circle that goes back to the uh, Guy Ballard and uh, and uh, the, the, what's the name of the guy? Pelly. That, uh, yeah, William Dudley Pelly. Yeah, who was put in jail during World War II as a as a traitor? So yeah. you know, for the silver shirts, which by the way, my the local branch uh, down in Augusta, Georgia, where I'm from, my father and the local rabbi infiltrated in order to find <laughs> out what they were up to sometime in 1938 or 39. But but uh, which was that's great. really dangerous for two Jews to do. But yeah. uh, that's nevertheless they weren't doing anything but acting like the Klan, you know, with with different uniforms. But uh, Adamski was of that, you know, that persuasion, and George Hunt Williamson it comes directly out of that circle, and he was right. one of Adamski's primary witnesses. Uh -huh. So um, um, uh, the, uh, the the Straith letter was to freak out one of Adamski's followers, and nothing else. You know, it just grew out of proportion, and then they got, you know, well, at least Gray got all paranoid about it. Jim found it all very amusing, but. Uh, there are exaggerations that make things that are absolutely legitimate and still going on, um, um, you know, reduced to Barker Mosley, who certainly didn't have the power to do anything before they were born. And a lot of these um, adjacent phenomena uh, that are somewhere on the border between the occult and UFOs, which I think is our theme tonight. Yeah, it's partly. Um, we're, we're, we'll get around to it. We've been talking for half an hour. We'll get around to it. <laughs> I'll rave on as long as you don't stop me. But uh, I like uh, your raving. See, I've had <laughs> Beckley on. He raves too. But the thing is, the raving is it, to me is interesting. So rave Beck on. Beckley and I were children together. Well, we were teenagers together. Really? One. Yes. <laughs> every New Year's, I went to New York and stayed at the Hilton, which overlooks Times Square. So I didn't have to mingle with the crowd, but I could, yeah. you know, invite people over. So Mosley would come. Sometimes Barker, if he was in town, would come. Keel would come. I got introduced to Keel at one of those, in fact. Um, um, uh, one time we were too long without sleep, as they used to say on the invaders. And uh, yes. uh, Steinberg says, uh, Gene Steinberg says, uh, let's call Stan Lee and invite him over. And in those <laughs> days, he was in the phone book. So yeah. we called him and invited him over, and he never showed up. So Stan... Uh, he snubbed you. He snubbed... He, I guess he was, even then, too big for us. Anyway, <laughs> he was busy putting tights on in his uh, cape. And Oh, that's his characters. Excuse me. I get... I get mixed up in my uh, old age, uh, as it were. So, uh, how old are you, Alan? Well, I'm going to be 69. Oh no! 
in just two weeks, 69. No. Are you going to be – or, or have you been 69? If you had a video, you would say, what a, what a vigorous young guy. It's the ginseng, I tell you. You know, it's just – The ginseng and – yeah, the ginseng and the, uh, and the ginger tea. Ah, the ginger tea is helping a lot. Yeah, it's, it's getting you – you're all hopped up on ginger, man. Yeah, and ginger is uh, an aphrodisiac too. So I don't know what that's going to do, but your Radio Mysterio uh, logo with the extensions is beginning to look very hot to me. <laughs> so yeah, that was one of my first questions. It was who you knew in your days, early days of research. We could go on with that forever, um, of course. Sure could. I mean, it's it, you know, it's uh, there should be a book about it. I tried to write a. Self-published book, the only thing self-published I've ever done, called Saucers and Saucerers, a play on words in yeah. the mid-1970s, that documented the, the groups that were around the National UFO Conference. But uh, there were the other groups and uh, our relations with them, which were somewhat less cordial, that uh, uh, probably would, would fill a good volume. But, I, you know, I'm not uh, – I won't be the one who writes it. Um, I but I should be in it, so. Yeah, yeah, you should. Hey, um, at some, a lot of people know you for, as we said, the uh, theme of the show, the occult angle. How did you sort of break with the early part of ufology? And, you know, what did you think then? Were you like Mosley, where you had like one idea, and then you latched on to another one, and then finally you just kind of, kind of said the hell with it. I don't know where they came from. Uh, how, did, how did all your, how did your ideas develop to the uh, point that where you thought that occult practice ideas and um, techniques were useful in studying the subject? Well, it, it started, my interest goes back in both uh, the occultism and I, more than that, in the paranormal, in cryptids, and UFOs all go back to around the same time in 1960, which is the year I joined the first UFO group that I was a part of. And uh, I was very young at the time, um, and my ideas tended to be uh, to compartmentalize those, although I found out later there were not a lot of people that uh, actually were interested in all of those areas. And you have to add also, for me, science fiction, science fiction movies, uh, old network radio programs, things of that sort. I, I saw them all as part of a continuum. They kind of uh, – um, exotic mystique uh, subjects um, uh, and uh, I did I, I subscribe to the uh, it, that UFOs had to be either extraterrestrial or they had to be natural phenomena and or hoaxes that uh, hoaxes in some of the better cases because natural phenomena is very difficult to explain you know some of the most uh, challenging cases, but it wasn't yeah. very long, about six years, which as these things go is not very long before I realized that that was a totally false dichotomy, absolutely false. In fact, I, I began over a period of time to question why did the extraterrestrial angle even come up as a primary thing. I mean, Kenneth Arnold, June 24th, 1947, sees nine gleaming objects, as Mosley always started his talks, nine gleaming objects <laughs> over the Cascade Mountains, comes down, uses a term, they look like saucers skipping across water, and the next thing you know, the term flying saucers is out there. But it's out there, 
and immediately people are saying extraterrestrial spaceships and there's a series of movies about it and books about it and that's quite a leap. They weren't seen on Mars. They weren't seen coming here from Sirius B-24. They were seen very close to the Earth and they looked very much like well, they look like uh, uh, stealth aircraft from the 1990s, which is uh, interesting in and of itself. Right. But, but nevertheless, we're talking about 1947, so why the leap? And then further cases, where do they come from? 99% of the cases are either natural phenomena or something seen near the Earth but inexplicable. I think actually the percentage that are that are not explainable is much higher than uh, than the general number that I hear, which goes from two to five percent, which I would say is just an anomaly. But it's it's more like twenty five percent worldwide on an ongoing basis are not easily explained, and the up close things are not easily explained at all. Uh, um, lights in the sky, maybe. Uh, especially uh, in the early days when people were beginning to see outre aircraft, jets, contrails, and so forth. Of course, they made a different conspiracy out of the contrails, too. So nevertheless, uh, the chemtrail yeah, conspiracy. Whole, yeah, that's a whole nother deal. We probably yeah, won't get to that. Another deal. And uh, nevertheless, nobody says the chemtrails are being sent here by aliens. At least very few people. Um, only like the maddest of the mad are saying that. It's it's presumed to be from earth Earth-based aircraft from conventional origins. And the fact is that these things were never seen coming here from space. And yet that was by the middle, mid 1950s, it was taken that either people are mistakenly uh, identifying uh, uh, natural phenomena under extraordinary conditions or, or uh, miscalculations uh, on their part, or they were spacecraft coming from another planet. And when Mars uh, proved to be not a particularly um, uh, likely origin, that was, that was true up until the, as, as late as the um, mid-1960s, it moved out to the stars, which is an incredible amount of distance. But they're always seen and have been since antiquity – very near the Earth. So I started to think in terms of what could be older than any nation on the Earth that is near the Earth. When seen near the Earth, it often is accompanied by other phenomena such as Mothman or the Flatwoods Monster or the Jersey Devil yeah. and men in black cases and uh, the black-eyed kids and uh, assorted other things that uh, – that go back to demonology lore and that nevertheless um, um, have shown up throughout the uh, the UFO era, um, often in proximity with, with UFOs. And I came to the conclusion that this was the same sort of thing that I was encountering in my experience then ongoing with uh, – with occultism and also uh, increasingly in recent years, not just with occultism, but as an over-explanation with, um, with uh, um, many worlds interpretation of quantum physics, which is a – although it's no longer new, the impact of the notion that we have interpenetrating worlds is something that has yet to get beyond uh, – 
hardcore uh, physics community, and uh, it hasn't even uh, moved over to the biological community, even though they're now saying that uh, uh, DNA molecules uh, change constantly, that they don't stay in a double helix. They bend and warp, and there are uh, uh, all sorts of ideas out there that have good sound bases. In fact, that the universe is filled with virtual particles. Sounds a lot like the the ether or Reichian organ energy or whatever. That yeah. maybe you know the underlying truth is that what we are seeing is sort of the edge of some other reality or realities, plural. Mm-hmm. That. Uh, for whatever reason, something to do with our minds, something to do with theirs, something to do with actual interpenetration of, of worlds. We briefly see something that just doesn't fit our scheme of reality, and then it's gone. And that seems to me much closer to home and much more consistent with what we understand, what little we understand about the universe. I mean, I, I often say our understanding of the universe not only is limited, but it may actually be near its limits. We are, after all, from a uh, biological, let alone geological, let alone cosmological uh, time, we just dropped out of the trees and stood upright a moment ago. Mm -hmm. And we're supposed to have, you know, we're equipped to or flee and reproduce and not die until our young are old enough to um, to move around for themselves. That's just all, all all the basics that we have. Only in a tiny, tiny fraction of a moment in in time have we stopped, learned to to, to plant and grow things, and therefore have time to contemplate the universe. We don't. We, I don't know that we have the the skill to get beyond just saying these things are there and that that we occasionally see them. But what we're seeing may only be sort of like a two dimensional being looking at a, a three dimensional object. So you think that uh, what I'm getting here and what I get from a lot of your work is that. Looking at things in a slightly different way or in a way that the human mind is not normally used to think, i.e. In the, in the way taught by Western occultism as a way of getting to an unseeable thing but maybe slightly controllable thing might have some implications for UFO study. Am I, am I incorrect in assuming that? No, you're absolutely correct. In fact, I think you can conjure up a UFO being. In fact, for years and years, I thought it was suspicious that the Albert Bender case, which is complicated um, by, um, first of all, that the all of the principles, except I think Bender is still living. But I think he is. I, he lives about, about five miles from me if he's still alive. Well, he was the last time Wikipedia updated, you know, so take it for what it's worth. But uh, he hasn't talked about this subject in many years. And Flying Saucers and the Three Men, unlike they knew too much about Flying Saucers, uh, although it has Bender's name on it. uh, Yeah, it was a Barker book, right? 
Parker book, yeah. Uh, but I think it's an as told to, essentially. Um, yeah. um, Albert K. Bender has told to Gray Barker and just not credited that way because Barker thought it would – it was from Saucerian Books, as I recall, and that was yeah. Barker's label. Yeah. So he thought it would sell better just, just saying uh, Bender wrote it. But nevertheless, one gets the distinct impression that Bender was interested in this same range of things – then, in the early 1950s, that I'm talking about now, uh, the, he was a uh, science fiction fan that went to a world con in England. So did Barker, by the way. He oh. was a, um, a ufologist, obviously, for one of the first before the term UFO even existed, I think. Um, that came yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. During Project uh, Sign, I think, or Project Blue Book, um, he was interested in uh, paranormal things, and he was interested in the occult. But I never knew for sure whether he was a practicing occultist. I thought he just had a lot of Halloween-y decorations year-round in his – what he called his chamber of horrors, right. I, his that, room in his parents' house. That big room, uh, yeah. Uh, in, in order to uh, – he said to get attention. But I finally ran across a photo, which I have put up on my blog here and there because it was from a very, very obscure source um, that shows clearly he had what any magician, practicing occultist magician would recognize as an altar. So his story begins to sound more like an occult invocation that maybe went wrong or just scared him. Right. I mean, the three men show up at his door. They're dressed all in black. That's a that's a uh, in the original sense of the word mythos that goes back at least to the Middle Ages and conceivably back to um, to to the most ancient written history. So I guess the most ancient history by definition. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, three men showed up according to uh, Genesis. Uh, at Abraham's tent, and he runs around like mad trying to greet them as if they were angels, which apparently they were supposedly – they were. And whether the story is true or not, the fact is the story is very early, and uh, at least uh, 25, 2,600 years old in the form that we have it now, and probably as a folktale another five, 700 years older than that. So we have these – Three mysterious beings showing up, exciting people, going all the way back, and uh, often, uh, uh, starting in the Middle Ages, dressed in black. And uh, so he has that. They give him a magic word, kaik, but spelled K-A-Z-I-K, right. which uh, has all sorts of coded implications for it, which is a summoning word, which they, is a standard thing in occultism, mm -hmm. and told that if he turns on his radio and, and presses this little token they give him, one might even be tempted to call it a talisman, yes. a magical object, that it will summon them to speak to him through the radio. And this is just, you know, the, the radio is the only part of this that doesn't fit directly into this being an occult ritual that drew something that he wasn't prepared to deal with. Because after all, the decorations for the 1950s, we have to allow there wasn't, you know, a, a huge uh, uh, occult community until the late 1960s. So yeah. he had to make do with what he could find. Um, the altar was 
a magical altar, and he clearly was doing an invocation. He got what he asked for. Apparently what he asked for was way too much for him. So he shut down the the, the first UFO group and uh, has been essentially – silent since then i think he continued to be friends with with the his immediate circle barker and uh some of jim mosley's friends uh all of whom have i think passed on augie roberts uh yeah. dominic lucchesi if any of them are still alive i apologize but i have the impression <laughs> that, that they went before jim and jim jim mosley is the poster child for what you shouldn't do with life and got away with it which is i never saw the man in the 40 years that i knew him ever sober i never saw him not lighting one cigarette off another and he he died young at the age of 82 yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it just defies defies all reason and here i am taking health foods and riding my bicycle every day and you know hoping for another yeah. another day and i wake up saying thank you god i woke up again yeah well some people are fighting genetics and other ones just uh, had very nice ones and or are lucky somehow yeah, his father, General Mosley, lived to be in well into his 80s, too. Evil, evil triumphs, and in Jim's case, uh, genetics triumphs, I suppose. His mother lived to be very old as well. She was a shipping magnet. He was not nearly as wealthy as some people seem to think he was, but uh, he was he was well-to-do. But then I started out well-to-do, and now I'm, you know on Social Security and getting by and don't go anywhere that somebody else doesn't pay for, so... Yeah, I, I hope that uh, a lot of us aren't heading for that. Um, so, what it may I, not be there when you get there. So, you, <laughs> <laughs> when you say that there, you know, there, that uh, people can perform invocations and, and call up these things, that this sounds insane to most people. Not to me. I don't know why, um, but <laughs> because you start your show with Ed Wood. That's right, and also because a, a heavy interest of mine is. If a lot of this stuff, and you've, I don't know if you've heard me say this, you probably haven't. If a lot of this stuff, if we're contributing, you know, a lot of the uh, to what is the UFO experience, that means that we can probably shape what it is and control what it is um, up to a certain point. Have you done that? Do you know people that have done it? And what have there been? What's been their results? Yes, and yes, but never specifically calling up a UFO being. I think uh, actually you could arguably say that Aleister Crowley, the uh, right. uh, the king of the uh, modern magicians, at least in many people's view, um, um, yeah. um, often called up beings that resembled the greys that have shown up in connection with UFO cases later. Yeah. I have done magical rituals that involve calling up and – Sending back um, um, beings from the Enochian ma- magical universe, but I've never done a crossover ritual. However, I'm pretty sure that the, the two are not really separate things. I mean, uh, uh, I, I think that they are simply a matter of how you label what it is that you're calling. Right. Up. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, it's it's a matter of it's a matter of uh, of degree of belief labeling and uh, what you expect, I guess. What I've what I like to tell people is if you if you find this uh, not believable, do it. You know, there's the books are available. All of the great secrets of the occult world, despite the efforts of some people to keep it 
deeply, deeply secret, isn't. It's all available in yes. my books, other people's books. I mean, it's just – it's all out there. You know, it's uh, – um, and the, the biggest problem is people need to learn, first of all, to to do some form of, of yoga or other other process that detaches you from the experience while you're having the experience mm-hmm. because the bad things, that is, would have a negative effect, uh, seem to feed on fear. And you need to have practice jhana or some other form of sitting meditation so that you can uh, be okay through the experience. And you shouldn't work alone. And finally, I give the advice to people, before you learn to invoke, which is not nearly as hard as people think, learn to banish, learn to exercise, because opening the doors to other wear is not an easy thing, but it's a not lot that easier. Hard. <laughs> but closing those doors, there's one in uh, San Diego that was opened in 1946, right before the UFOs showed up and right before Crowley died, and it's never been closed. It was opened by uh, Ron Hubbard, who went on to other things, and uh, uh, um, Jack Parsons, the rocket scientist, as detailed in the book uh, Sex and Rockets. And other places, but I mean, it's a well-known story. And, uh, and I didn't know uh, this was in San Diego. The rumor was it was out in the Mojave Desert somewhere. What, what's no, the no, San- no, 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 no. The the resultant book that was channeled was out in the Mojave Desert, the same area that George Adamski claimed his uh, UFO contacts were in. So it, it's uh, a really during the same period when uh, when Adamski was floating. The story that he told as a fiction book, which was rejected, right. and which he then rewrote over a couple of years and uh, came up with some witnesses and uh, published as a nonfiction book with the assistance of the uh, so-called Sorcerer Royal, uh, uh, Desmond Leslie, um, who was, you know, a minor no- minor English nobility, but. Um, um, and a, a, a polished writer, which Adamski definitely was not. But uh, that doesn't mean he didn't have an experience. Uh, the Mojave, most of our great spiritual experiences happen in the desert. Right. You know, from, you know, that in modern times from there to the Don Juan Carlos Castaneda books, uh, they're all out in the desert. That's where I went to graduate school in southern Arizona and um, in the um, – Sohuaro uh, National Park, which has no trees. It just has those funny-looking cactuses, the yes. Sohuaros that look like people, yeah. especially, especially if you're stoned, which I never get. So Yes, but, at night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I have visited Tucson many times. There's an eastern and western part of that Sohuaro National Park, and I think the eastern one has a lot more of the cacti in it. Yeah, I mean uh, – uh, I used to go out uh, during those Halcyon school days, circa 1979, 80. Um, uh, one of the uh, instructors uh, who had given up a medical practice to uh, teach uh, meditation. We're talking about the 1970s, early 80s. So we're we're talking about credit courses <laughs> in uh, amazing. Alan Watts' uh, philosophy, blah blah blah. So we uh-huh. go out to the Sabino Canyon parking lot and lay down on the ground just after sunset and listen to the ghostly voice of Alan Watts 
um, uh, telling us that, that we were falling through the universe. And you know, staring up at the stars in the desert, you feel like you're going, you know, floating through the universe. You mm-hmm. can actually experience this as being a a physical place. feeling almost. Yes, it is. You can, in fact, sometimes it gets to be a physical feeling. Um, um, it's something I recommend to people who are total skeptics. Dark night, uh, um, you know. Um, no moon. Uh, no moon. No moon, preferably. Uh, lay down flat on the ground where there isn't any obstruction and stare up into the sky and see if you don't fall into the sky. Because objectively, that's exactly what we're all doing all the time. <laughs> we just have these distractions around us. And I just realized I'm looking at this picture as if I were looking at your face, and it's a fingerprint with stickums coming out of it. But <laughs> I've got to stop looking at that. So let me tell you another story. You want to hear a story about what happened when I got brought the good news that the occult and UFOs and paranormal research were all part of one one. You got spectrum. brought the good news, or was it a, a kind of a gnosis moment? Go ahead. Well, it wasn't a moment. It was a long process oh, okay. of, of yeah. realization, and then you know it, 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 it fell together. I went to the ufologists and told them, and they said, that's interesting. I went to the paranormal researchers, and they said, you need to do the kind of testing that we – because they're you know, eons ahead of, of occultists or ufologists in terms of – the rigors of their their scientific discipline. There is some question as to whether you can reproduce in a laboratory what goes on out in the real world, uh, um, and I think that's a legitimate question. But yes. uh, they, they at least make the effort. Uh, uh, ufology has done little in that direction. And, yeah, uh, well, because it's hard uh, to do it's, there, Alan. You know, it's it, yeah. it's it shows up whenever it wants to, according to most people. But not according to me. Yes, I know. Please go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say that there is a – if you have something in a close encounter case equivalent to, to Bender's Kayak, if you use the cipher known as Nuion English Kabbalah, uh, discovered in the 19 – well, first transcribed in Crowley's Book of the Law, but mm-hmm. then – which is a skatey sort of thing, and what Crowley thought about it was pretty skatey, but um, – <laughs> Uh, I mean, it later became his holy book, and there are people that consider it their religion. Just what the world needs, another damn religion, right? But uh, be that as it may, the point is there is a, a cipher in there that mostly uh, – mostly, well <laughs> – There's a slip. <laughs> yes, and I wonder what Freud would make of that, but he's dead too, and so are they. <laughs> but it doesn't matter right now. What matters is Crowley's Book of the Law – or Iwas's Book of the Law, depending on who you think wrote it. Um, um, uh, Crowley disowned it as, you know, not his writing, but that of a, a preternatural being, whatever that may be, yes. called Iwas that uh, uh, he only saw out of the corner of his eye and looked like the, the image of Wallace Fard that uh, Malcolm X had while he was in prison that uh, led him to become a member of the Nation of Islam. And Countless other people have seen something similar, a um, 
a, a being of somewhat Asiatic caste that uh, was neither black nor white nor nor Oriental, but uh, some weird combination thereof and with an intensity that would burn right through you. That's a, a common phenomenon among people who have um, um, this experience. spiritual experiences or, or religious experiences. Call them what you know. Call them what you will. Um, um, and I've completely lost the track of where I was going. Oh, the the cipher. Yes. So I began um, um, a uh, long since deceased ingenious friend of mine who developed a computer program to analyze this code. Uh, brings the code to me and says, it's very useful for magical work. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's lots of stuff that's good for magical work. And um, he had uh, made it uh, – his name was Tim Coutte, God rest his soul. Just one of those people that was too smart for the world that we live in, you know. They, yeah. I watched him. You know the scenes in The Matrix where people are doing coding and, and reading it directly from code? I watched him do medical coding that way from home for the CDC, the uh, Center for Disease Control. And it was, you know, it was as fast as it was in the Matrix. And I don't know whether, you know, there are other people who are, you know, computer geeks who are probably laughing at me now. But I was just, you know, mouth open, incredulous that anybody could could decipher that at that speed. I couldn't decipher English at that speed. So anyway, um, uh, I was not all that impressed until I just idly applied it to one of the many, many strange names for planets or beings contacted in in uh, trans-channeling or, or in uh, uh, contact cases or even right. in abduction cases. And – it immediately translated it using the Book of the Law as its base book into something that was predictive of a major UFO event down the line. And so my first book, which the late Ron Bonds, uh, who died way too young and under very, very mysterious circumstances, um, um, along with several of his writers who did conspiracy and UFOs, which yeah. – I only do UFOs. I don't do conspiracies. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I survive for that reason. But because um, uh, I think conspiracies are mostly not so quacko. You know, everybody has something they think is not so quacko. And I guess, you know, thinking 9-11, all the, all the Jewish people were out of the building because they got, they got the note, you know, and that kind of thing is just uh, President Trump will have to enlighten me on that because I just don't <laughs> believe any of it. <laughs> Laugh, if you will. I'm looking at the polls and sweating this one out. Yeah, exactly. Get out and vote for anybody else. I don't care who it is, but <laughs> that's going to be bad news. And dig that fall, fallout shelter that your grandfather put put in in the 1950s up yeah. and have it, it you know, renewed because it's going to be useful. You put Putin and Trump together, they'll they'll come to an agreement of yeah, sort. Uh, that the, yeah, that involves the rest of us basically being wiped off the earth. Go off ahead. the earth. Yes, so that they can, you know, enjoy, enjoy one another's company and play chess unto infinity <laughs> uh, at Trump Tower uh, in the in the much larger shelter that is available there. But uh, I just thought he does actually sue people, doesn't he? But anyway, so uh, <laughs> so I put out the book. Uh, I think he has a large selection of people to sue at this point. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, you had me on the show, so we'll we get around to the leader of the OTO. We'll see. They're very litigious too, but I don't. Yes, think they yes. Have, I don't think they have any money anymore, so don't worry too much about them. And besides, I won't mention their names, Bill Breeze. Yeah, well, that's what they want, so don't do that. I just did, but <laughs> <laughs> you will edit it out, won't you, Bill Breeze? Yes, of course. Sure. Yeah, it's okay. all. It's all. I, all of this is gone. The Caliph of the OTO, uh, uh, but we'll get around to that in a moment. Point okay. is, in the first book that I um, – uh, first not self-published book from Illuminate Press was Secret, Secret Cipher, yeah. Cipher of the Euphonauts, yeah. and um, I had written a sequel. It was meant to be part of a trilogy, the, the sequel, Secret Rituals of the Men in Black, I'll get to in a moment. It was 10 years before that got published because – there was interference with um, getting it published. But I basically told how to predict a UFO. Um, and uh, about, I guess about five years ago, I was doing a radio program. I think it was Gene Steinberg's, whatever it's, his show is called. Um, Paracast. Yeah, Paracast, right, with uh, Jim Mosley and uh, the usual gang of idiots from that period. Not idiots. <laughs> Uh, and uh, they said, well, if you can predict it, why don't you predict one? I said, I put the book out in order to get people to self-validate. I don't want to do the work for them because then they'll say, yeah, well, you guessed. Yeah, you did it. well, you know, you, you hit it lucky, whatever. I said, the book will tell you exactly how to take an existing major case and parlay that into a prediction of the next major case or a next major case within a, you know, like a 72-hour – I don't remember exactly what I said. It's a very short time period. And they said, well, do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. Well, I've got people all over the country yelling, you know, from Key West to to L.A. or wherever Gene is at the moment, um, um, somewhere on earth, I presume. Um, make one prediction. So I did, and uh, I just did it to spite them, and within 24 hours of where I predicted and when, rather spectacularly, a UFO appeared over uh, the Manned Space Flight Center in, uh, in Texas, and I was back on Gene's program, and I think Jim was on it, uh, you know, that was – I'm trying to – time goes by quickly when you're old. But uh, uh, I think it was about five years ago, and uh, they came up with some rationalization for for it. And I thought, never again. I'm not making predictions. I will say, read Secret Sire for the Euphonauts. It's free. It's a PDF online. If you buy it, I don't get any royalties for it, so don't buy it. Get the free PDF that I put up on Scribed, and uh, that's you know that's all you really need to do. And read the sequel as well, Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. And between those two books, you ought to be able to accurately, if you you know study contemporary UFO cases, which is as easy as going to the news feed on on Google and um, you know putting in UFOs as an area of interest. You'll get stories virtually every day. Until you find one that has a workable word in it, do the um, computation, which is very, very simple to do. You can do it manually if you, you know, if you don't have access to to one of the many 
computer, all you have to do is say uh, NAEQ translator or New Eon English Kabbalah translator, and there are a bunch of them online. You type in the word, it gives you the number value and words that fit that value, and uh, all you have to do is use common sense to figure out, oh, Lima. Well, that's either Lima, Peru or Lima, Ohio. Well, this case was – and you know, you, you just do a little bit of elementary detective work, and you'll know where it's going to be and when. And, and if you don't believe me, do it, and if it doesn't turn out, say so loudly in public. I, but uh, I have yet to have anybody say, I tried it. It didn't work. And How many it, people have said, I tried it, and it worked wonderfully, and uh, have uh, shouted that to the four corners? No, because people today – I mean the book has been out for 20 years now, The original Secret Cipher. Yeah. I think people read it. I mean there have been thousands of, of, of hits on it, and when it was in, in – um, the original paperback edition sold out, which was I think 2,500, and then when it was reprinted by uh, – well, I won't mention the publisher because they never paid me any royalties, but it, it, it sold very well, and then I realized they weren't paying me royalties, so I put it up as a free PDF. Uh, and, uh, and uh, I mean, I, I got scammed on that, and that's happened to me a couple of times. But suffice to say, I'm glad it's out there anyway, so don't be discouraged from reading it because the publisher was you – know, small publishers can sometimes be really honest people like Bonds was, and um, sometimes they can be – Real jerks, and uh, that was a real jerk. But nevertheless, the um, you know the contents of the book are the books plural are very very useful for doing it. It's just that people are so lazy now; they are willing to read it, which is <laughs> exceptional now that people will read anything. But they're not willing to work with it. I don't get letters. I get letters saying, "Oh, I read your two UFO books. Uh, is there anything else that you?" But I never get a letter that says, I used the system, I understood it, I tried it, and the following are my results. I think I have never gotten so much as one letter, pro or con, in all the years that the book has been out. Very strange, but consistent with what I understand about the times we live in. Yeah. So what's the connection then? Do you, th you know, I, I, I suppose it's self-evident to you and a few people, but this is an interview, so – What's the connection then? Why does that work the way it does, do you think? Why, if you use the New Ian English Kabbalah translation of some of these um, strange, inscrutable words, names, and all that, you know, what is the mechanism there, and is it controllable? Can you be accurate with it for, with certain, by using it a certain way? A lot I of different had, questions. I I'm sorry. I had thought that people would go out with cameras and, you know, record the sightings, but uh, it just hasn't. It hasn't been that way. And uh, uh, how did how did it happen? Well, the according to Crowley's somewhat dubious account, he is given this this code by a a a being from otherwhere. Yes, which um, you know he uh, he was. Unlike his followers inside the uh, corporate OTO, he was very much into the notion of the uh, the secret chiefs of the inner order who were virtually um, uh, beings from otherwhere. Um, I don't know what term to use. Other dimensions, other other yeah. places, high more highly developed beings. What the uh, the the uh, 
traditional contact uh, ufology people and uh, uh, borderland sciences people would call the the uh, the inner order, or the secret chiefs, or the the ascended masters is a is a, a term the theosophists use. Same things basically. Uh, he thought that that was a reality and that this was a communication, as were some later communications from the secret chiefs. So perhaps the secret chiefs, who are said to be, uh, especially in the uh, borderland sciences work, the guardians of humanity that keep us from being essentially driven crazy or taken over by these infiltrating beings. I don't know that I buy into that mythos, but let's just for the moment assume that. Let's speculate that perhaps Iwas, which is an interesting name that uh, Crowley had two entirely different spellings for, um, wanted people to know that there was something in the way of a code that um, I'm going to use the word aliens, but see it in quotes and italicized. Yes. Aliens among us could communicate with one another as to where they can get picked up and where the next one is landing and things of that sort. Well, why wouldn't they use telepathy or something more mundane like the Internet or radio or something? Any. Uh, anybody who keeps up with uh, with hacking knows that any of those things, or for that matter, the NSA, as I'm sure they're listening. Hi guys! Oh, beautiful forest. <laughs> okay, uh, we love we love this country, and so should. Oh, now so, you're talking like Mosley did for a while. <laughs> so say we all. Well, Mosley was a liberal, borderline socialist, sort of like Bernie Sanders. But anyway, that's. Uh, and for a rich guy, that was, you know, commendable. Yes. Go ahead. I, I'm sorry. I told him to give away his money. He said, not until everybody else does. But, <laughs> <laughs> sensible answer, actually. But um, where was I? Uh, we were. You were talking about uh, IWAS and uh, how that – whatever that intelligence was had – uh, did not want to use an easy way of communicating uh, information about itself to us. So I think if there are aliens in quotes, in quotes and italics and red ink, uh, <laughs> and they want to communicate, they create a circumstance such as the Woodrow Derenberger case with Indrid Cold so that it's guaranteed to get in the newspapers and those who are others of their same type. We'll see the name Indrid Cole. They'll ignore the name itself, but they'll break it down into code and in turn turn it into a contact point. And that's precisely what I think has been going on for the last hundred years. When I first published the book uh, at the first uh, convention that I gave a lecture on it, I said they're probably going to change the code now that I've you know, got this out there, but they needn't because apparently nobody has taken them up on it. So as far as I know, that that code that dates back at least to the 19th century um, uh, is still in use. And um, um, until somebody actually shows up before a major incident happens and takes a picture of it or, or you know, has the, the press there or, you know, has – 
the media in, involved, I think that uh, you know it will continue to be used, and then they'll switch to something else. Just as I believe in medieval times and a little later, they had a different code that is known as the language of the angels or Enochian uh, language, which until that became in modern times with the birth of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the original, not the Memorex version alive today, um, um, uh, was unknown and could be used very freely. Um, there are similar codes in Freemasonry, which are – I mean, th- th- this is not something that I'm speculating on. You can uh, go to Kessinger Publications, which uh, has the habit of anything that isn't nailed down by copyright that has anything to do with Freemasonry. They reprint and uh, – <laughs> There's tons of it, and uh, there are lots and lots of these uh, these codes around. They are codes. They are, they are not as sophisticated as something like the Enigma code that the Nazis used in World War II, but then that got cracked. Right. It, got, it got cracked fairly quickly with the development of the first primitive uh, computers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I would think this code is, is ki- deliberately kept uh, relatively simple – because that makes it harder to crack. It's also less likely to attract attention. It wasn't even known and generally isn't regarded even now as a code, the perfect thing to hide behind. If there's no code, there's no code. When I, uh, when I wrote the book, well, I'll tell this story and you can decide whether to leave it in or not. I was for 20 years a member of the uh, – Corporate Ordo Templi Orientis. I was for the last 10 of those years a rather high-ranking initiate of that order, and they uh, um, held a Grand Lodge office. I knew the um, uh, freighter superior or uh, caliph, as they used to call him before that term became yeah. <laughs> a bit loaded, um, which is still technically a, a title, I guess, but uh, – um, um, he for a while was living not too far from where I live now, and uh, uh, at that time I was the master of their local lodge in Atlanta, and he would uh, come and visit me fairly frequently, and I would go and visit him. And um, on one of our trips where he was driving, um, he jumps on me about my UFO book. <laughs> And, and says – this is his rationale. He says, look, you lost a Grand Lodge job because of this because the occult is respectable, but UFOs are crazy. <laughs> this is while he's playing a demo tape that he did with the band Psychic TV, which if you know anything about yes. band, made it all the more ludicrous. So I'm sitting there. He's the boss, and I'm just the, you know, and I felt, you know, I can't get out of the car because we're just, you know, somewhere in North Georgia in the dark. And I thought, is this guy really for real? Does he really think this? I mean, the acceptance level of UFOs, the number of professional scientists and other academics that that think there's something to UFOs is far, far greater than the number that, uh, that, 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 think that the occult is anything other than hooey or blasphemy or, you know, depends, depending on what their background is, it's, it's uh, 
there's not a lot of polling on the occult, but it's generally not well thought of at all. And I don't know where this guy is coming from, but uh, actually linking the two would be better better for the occult than um, than for uh, ufology. A ufology is the more uh, neither is acceptable, but right. you know, and apparent, but nevertheless, in the in the order of popularity and credibility that that is given both in the academic community and in the in the public, um, um, saying the occult is something that could be damaged by ufology is an absurdity, and uh, let alone paranormal research, which is <laughs> has teetered on the edge of being acceptable. Uh, for 30 years. I mean, that's just the case. So the, the guy was just off the wall. But he scared me out of publishing the already completed sequel. And when I published the sequel, finally, when I was really done with that organization, I had not yet quit. But I mean, I had seen enough and heard enough and decided that it was totally off the track, even in its own area. Yes. Uh, not because all of its members were bad people, but because – nor is it sinister in the way some people outside of it think that it is. I mean they couldn't, they couldn't lead a Boy Scout march on a burlesque house, uh, so they're, they're hardly dangerous Illuminati or whatever. But uh, um, People don't realize that it's self-therapy. That's basically what it is. Uh, it's actually, in my opinion – Mostly a contact point for people who are druggies and people looking to get laid. Yeah, well, that's what it is now. But if if you take it in the way that most people that are – this is why Rigardi said you should go through a, a course, a heavy course of psychoanalysis before you even start it. Yeah, he, he recommended 200 hours of psychotherapy for anybody that gets involved with the occult. Yes. And having having been a sovereign grand inspector general uh, with a free Delta pass for – uh, for several years and having gone to various bodies around the country, I can confirm what the late Dr. Regardy, who I knew, um, uh, had to say about that. There are a lot of nutso quackos in, in the occult world. There are some very intelligent people. Yeah, you never hear some, from them. Uh, no, you don't because they, they tend not to – they tend to either be sidelined or ignored. Yeah. And um, in fact, one of the things that started to move me away from the OTO is I noticed there was no correlation, none, between level of initiation in, in the organization and level of attainment as, as, a, as a person of, of knowledge. Yes, exactly. Uh, they would give stuff – they, they would give grades away based on favors and things. Uh, yeah, or, or on uh, uh, academic background, anything but what they, the organization supposedly <laughs> is all about. Exactly. Uh, uh, one apparently was given the highest degree because he contributed some artwork. Famous guy, and I'm not going to mention his name because he's an okay Joe, but uh, yeah. uh, he, he never even was an initiate member. But uh, Honorary but degrees. Uh, yeah, well, he was uh, elevated to ninth degree from – as far as I know, non-membership, and I was at the time uh, uh, very high in in the organization, um, uh, which is not necessarily speaking that well of me. It speaks well of my persistence, but by then, <laughs> I, I just had realized that there are higher degree people who are utter fools who don't have a clue 
what this is all about. And there are people who are just starting out who are liable to become disillusioned who really have it all figured out as much as any human being could. And instead of, you know, uh, moving up based on level of knowledge and receptivity, they're pretty clueless on what level of knowledge is. So they're, they're hardly in a position to do anything about that. But they were very hostile to bringing in uh, occultism or paranormal research. I once had a conversation with the the then new U.S. Grandmaster uh, about why don't we do objective tests of the degrees to see whether people, you know, standard psychological profiles, for example, to see if people actually are improved as human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what it's for. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what Crowley said it was for. How the, the, the degrees through seventh are designed to say, how does a young man mend his way? Meaning, you know, how should you live your life since they're also young women and also not so young? Actually, their membership, I believe, is an aging membership and shrinking. But that's dated information. I'm not privy to current uh, data on that. But through my day, and that ends around 2005, thereabouts. Um, it was getting older and older and smaller and smaller. But anyway, I give him uh, this uh, – and this is a very intelligent man, um, uh, unlike the caliph or freighter superior who is uh, the type of person who perhaps did too much acid in the 60s, if you know what I mean. Um, yes, now, unfortunately. This, this is a more um, – sober person and I'm telling him, you know, basically you could test for these things and determine whether we're doing effective things or not. Right. And he looked at me, he said something like, well, that's very interesting. And I realized it was in one ear and out the other. It was just not of interest to him to explore the implications of what they were doing. And I thought, well, if this is what is the level of thinking at the highest level, this is not worth doing. And it took me a while to, you know, make a flamboyant exit, but I did. One time I saw uh, Ivan Stang from the Church of the Subgenius giving a, giving a big rant on stage, and I sort of knew him at the time. And he said at one point in the speech, he said, there's a step after the Church of the Subgenius, but don't take that step. And in the middle, right in that little space before he said something else, else I said, is that step leaving the church, Stang? <laughs> <laughs> well, supposedly the highest degree in the original Bavarian Illuminati was the, uh, was the open door. You had gone through various initiations, which were terrifying and illuminating. And then you were said, here is the door that will lead you to the true reality. And it was an exit onto the street. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. But Which means you, no... you quit and you're ready to move on. Yes. Well, I just think that, that uh, none of the current hierarchical organizations, maybe it's because they're hierarchical, I certainly feel that are contributing very much to – uh, advancing the cause of illumination through occultism and uh, my efforts to bring uh, occultists and ufologists and paranormal researchers and uh, cryptologists. Uh, what would you call cryptidologists? There's got to be a term for it. Well, crypt- cryptozoologists, I guess. 
cryptozoologist. Yes, yes. that's perfect. Um, um, together, um, the, 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 the cryptozoologists don't have any problem with ufology, and ufology doesn't have any problem with them. There's a uh, lot of over- yes, there is. There. But but for these other things, they don't know one another at all. And yeah. I'm just one of the few people that, from the very beginning, it was obvious they were part of the same spectrum of phenomena. I didn't realize how closely when I when I first started out, but I certainly do now and have for quite a number of years. And I, you know, that's the gospel I preach: take it or leave it. Um, In what way? You know, I th- I think I know what you mean, and I think a lot of people listening think they know what you mean. But what do you mean when they're all related? How, how do you see it? Well, I think in paranormal research, you're you're trying to look at uh, different powers of the mind. Obviously, in magic and occultism, you're looking at directing powers of the mind. If you develop certain powers of the mind temporarily or permanently, you may be able to see into other realities and there appear the cryptids and the men in black and UFOs. Perhaps they generate it. Perhaps you generate it. But either way, it's we're on that border of a reality that knows no space and time as we know it, and perhaps not at all. And all of these things are are, are subtexts of that. If you add to that uh, um, the far-thinking science fiction of people like uh, Philip K. Dick, my you know, personal favorite. Yeah, uh, it, it becomes also part of the same. He was basically writing autobiogra- autobiography as fiction, as became apparent when much of his exegesis came out uh, um, after he passed on all all too early in life. And um, uh, nevertheless, he left an enormous corpus of of far thinking things that are emulated very very badly now, even on on on. Network TV. There, it still exists. Most of your listeners won't know that. They'll know more about UFOs than they do about uh, NBC, ABC, and CBS. They're still out there. And I turned on because I, they were doing a short. They were doing a series out of one of Philip K. Dick's short stories, and they completely missed the point of it. Completely. I mean, it's entertaining, but uh, if you can stomach commercials, which I have a lot of trouble with, but. Um, um, I, I, I guess that uh, uh, they just don't get it. But if you if you get some of this stuff, and I've been reading his stuff since the 1950s, I've read every book that he ever wrote, including the ones that were only published posthumously. Um, I feel that um, um, that it fits into that same socket that I mentioned. That it's it's powers of the mind that open are open from elsewhere or open within ourselves that allow us to see beyond what we would normally consider consensus reality. Is that reasonably clear? That's totally clear to me. Is there a problem you think, and I keep harping on this if you have people listening to my show, is is there a problem you think with, if this is an external reality, all this weird stuff, external reality in huge quotes, I mean one that we can't see most of the time, how accurate is our view of it? That's a really interesting question. As they used to say, that's the $64 question. Yes. My guess is not at all. Me too. Not, I think we are, <laughs> we are seeing just, just what you need to see 
to flee from the saber-toothed tiger, to find the uh, uh, the creature of the same species as you of the opposite sex to mate with them very briefly and uh, to kill smaller creatures in order to survive. Beyond that, it's just a moment in time that our cerebral cortex has been developing enough to think about what's on the other side of the moon and actually go to the other side of the moon and actually go to Mars, if not in person, then with our surrogates. And that's um, – I don't want to diminish those accomplishments, but gosh, when you start talking about uh, uh, the, the, the uh, variations of the Copenhagen solution to, the, uh, to quantum physics, it, it begins to be in areas that the quantum physicists really can't express themselves. Um, yeah, because the language stops them. Yes, language stops them, and they try to use mathematics, but mathematics has its limitations as well. Mm. And uh, uh, because it doesn't, it doesn't self-prove. It can balance, but it doesn't self-prove. And um, um, the, the notions that have come up in, in, in recent years that the universe is filled with uh, dark matter, much more dark matter and dark energy than. Uh, than with that which we can see and that which we can know. Well, guess what? That's not out there. That's right here. You know, there are virtual particles all around us. I don't see them. The, the, the reality that we see is sort of a, a buildup to allow us to function in those primal ways that I just mentioned mm-hmm. and not much more. So some of the stuff you've been doing in the occult and um, some Eastern uh, practices and all that – um, I, you know, and people have said this before, is an attempt to move beyond those things because we don't, we, we can do that now. As you said, we don't need to be worried about the tiger around the corner or up in the tree or whatever. So, but the thing is, if you do that, that gives your, your brain more time to create scenarios to graft onto these things that we don't have access to, Right. Uh, correct. Although I think uh, I don't mean to frustrate anybody. I think I wouldn't be using my life to to do this quest if I thought things could not be beneficially accomplished by it. But I think that we are not likely to be able to uh, intellectually grasp uh, anything like even remotely resembling the whole of, of reality. I think what we can do is know in the sense of gnosis, that is have mm. a, have a, 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 an, a vision that is unspeakable of the totality. But beyond that, to be able to uh, enunciate it, um, I think every, every great mind in history that has tried has wound up sp- uh, spinning off another religion or another ideology that becomes uh, 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 a caricature of the original uh, perception. So uh, I think it's, it's important to pursue it, but be aware that it's going to be very, very hard to communicate to uh, any other party. And I, you know, I try to keep it at that level. That, that is to say, what we can know is that we can't know, but we can try to find something in the way of link-ups between the various aspects of the unknown and see if they link up in such a way that we can comprehend at least that they are linked and that they are meaningful. 
and then you know translate that into some sort of existential meaning for our own lives and the lives of our families, loved ones, country, whatever it is that that matters to you as an individual. Yeah. Well, see, there's the problem. How do you? You can't communicate that numinous experience. All you can communicate is various crude methods for possibly getting at it if you follow them and they link up with your you know psychology heritage time you're alive uh, time in your life all that stuff it's 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 like saying you know it, it, what you're saying here is you you have to try right yeah i i think it's in human nature i i think we are uh curiosity is hardwired into us right um, uh, we would not have come as far as we have, as little as that is relative to our remote ancestors, of which we um, w- we often speak in a deprecating manner, although I don't think they were, you know, uh, less intelligent than we are. And uh, the latest information is that people of European extraction are um, 5% on average, Neanderthals. So, you know, we, we have this caricature of Neanderthals, but A, they apparently could interbreed with with Homo sapiens, uh, which is what we supposedly are, and B, that uh, people of European descent who seem to pride themselves on some sort of uh, intellectual superiority, uh, uh, something very questionable at best, uh, some, are, are 5% do. Neanderthals. Um, um, <laughs> so uh, maybe we should uh, revisit what Neanderthals actually were. You know, maybe they were, maybe they were the better alternative and they just didn't have the numbers. Who knows? Or maybe the, uh, Homo sapiens were better at killing. You know, that's, maybe. uh, I mean, it's very hard or enslaving or whatever it is that wound up, um, Making their 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 DNA as part of the European DNA. I don't know. I'm you know of Ashkenazic Jewish uh, background, so that's it's, that's a whole different story. <laughs> and and the interesting thing is, in Asia, that shows up very rarely. In in African populations, there's no Neanderthal DNA at all. That means people that never left Africa uh, never interacted with neanderthals so that's you know um an interesting datum yeah. that is too new for us to even you know uh, contemplate what it might or might not mean yeah well the uh i can't remember where i read it somewhere online which means ab- it's of course it's absolutely true but um that absolutely yes it's all true yeah it, it's as true as your belief system but the the thing that I read is that uh, based on you know brain size or I suppose which doesn't really mean anything and um, artifacts and uh, a few other data points, somebody had said that if you, if you gave a Neanderthal a, a Neanderthal a video game, probably within a few minutes he could play it. Yeah, well yeah. that's for sure, and I don't know whether that says a lot about. Uh uh, the uh, the intelligence of of adroit video game players, or says a lot about Neanderthal intelligence. Uh, well, the point was that it everything, all the tools, all the mental tools they were seeing, figuring, all the mental tools were there. It's just that none of the nobody had invented the uh, actual tools. The conceptualizing was there from the beginning, or almost from the beginning. But oh it, yeah, I, I'm I'm virtually certain that that's true. I mean, after all, computers are just a way of emulating our brains, uh, uh, and uh, 
if we get into quantum computing, probably it'll do more than emulate. Um, yeah, we'll, well there's, there's some books about that. One of them I was I'm reading I was reading recently. I think it was called Our Last Invention. It was basically about the uh, the uh, horrible threat of uh, artificial intelligence, and when it gets to uh, general human intelligence, I can't remember what it is, but when it gets to the human intelligence level, it will very quickly pass that and go into a super intelligence that we cannot control. That's what uh, people like Elon Musk and a few other people are very worried about. It's very interesting that people assume that if it's post-human, that it's going to be hostile to humans. You know, that, that, that reflects something about human reality, not so much about post-human reality. They might be absolutely benevolent. Any beings that we encounter might be the notion of violence or subduing others might be so alien to them that they would regard it as something that they wouldn't know quite how to answer. Well, the point of the book was that it, they, they, the, the computer program, unless it was programmed into it, uh, would not care. I mean, it, it, there would be no moral questions. It would just be, is this good for my existence or is it not? It doesn't matter if it has to do any, anything to do with harming or, or, or enriching a humans' lives. The program, if it, was, if it was made badly or could replicate itself to be made into a you know, complete, you know, it would say, I need to make paper clips. So the entire, its entire existence would be to change, the, change its reality and change the reality around it to produce paper clips. And anything that stood in the way of making paper clips would either be destroyed or subsumed into making paper clips. <laughs> I think if you have sufficient complexity in any context, consciousness enters in. I don't mm. know how. That's a very, very mysterious process. Yeah. Our, our brains are such that consciousness enters in. Materialists say it goes with the brain. Uh, immaterialists say it comes into the brain like radio signals come into a radio tuner or a TV signal comes into a TV or my voice comes into your living room or wherever you are um, on top of a tower with King Kong. Um, it. it any of those could be true, and there, there are good arguments uh, for any of those. But the point is, at some point of complexity, consciousness enters in. And it is my opinion, and it may sound a little bit – it's a, actually a semi-quote from KPAC, but beings all over the universe know right from wrong. And I think once consciousness enters in – there is a certain capacity for benevolence that transcends any original coding, good, bad, or otherwise. I think you're going to find that, uh, that, that uh, if human beings replace themselves with machines, the machines are going to be a lot more benevolent than we are. I hope you're right. I, was, I, I hope was, so, too. <laughs> I, won I was wondering how you know, a sense of consciousness and moral, more, more importantly, as you say, quote unquote, a moral sense becomes encoded into a program that is eight zillion times more uh, intelligent than any human. Um, I, I would not know how that enters into that program except by the, by the, you know, by the intricate encoding of something that is that intelligent, which is, I, that's what I think is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, Just by smarter? being that intelligent, that stuff comes with it. Who was smarter, Gandhi or Hitler? I mean, you know, I, I don't think Hitler was stupid, but I think Gandhi was far more profoundly conscious and probably had 40 IQ points on him. You know, it's just – it's um, – Maybe. Uh, 
It's likely, in my opinion, uh, or uh, George Wallace and Martin Luther King. Uh, George <laughs> Wallace was a, was a charismatic fool, charismatic only in the South. Martin Luther King was a genius of what of the areas that he dealt in and in mobilizing people and what he wrote and what he said and how he said it. Um, um, it, it, it just it doesn't follow that. There is something sinister about higher intelligence. Uh, one reads uh, Nietzsche's notion of uh, the, the goal of man is to be a bridge to the Ubermensch, which is a, an idea that is completely distorted by the Nazis, but yeah. uh, which Nietzsche was not even remotely. Um, it uh, doesn't mean that the Superman or the higher man, uh, difficult to know how he meant it. Ubermensch is not a good, an easy term to translate into English. Yes. Um, uh, is, um, I mean, how does it wind up being a guy in tights with a big S on his chest? You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's two Jewish guys in the 30s wanting to, yes, wanting to exactly. think that Clark Kent can be something more than he is. Yeah. But, uh, but, be that as it may, um, very um, symbolic. I, 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 I do think I'm lost with that image of two Jewish cartoonists saying, "What can we come up with next, Moish? Well, why don't we have a guy with tights on and a cape and a big red S on his chest? What's the big red S for? I don't know. Let's call him Ubermensch. <laughs> Let's call him Superman then. Yeah, whatever, what, whatever it was in Yiddish. Yes. <laughs> Well, Ubermensch was probably pretty close. Yeah, you know? probably pretty close. Um, but in any case, uh, I, I, I think that the <laughs> notion that the Ubermensch would be horrible and cruel in the way that uh, that Hitler envisioned is in no way what, uh, if you've read Nietzsche's unfortunately named in our time, The Gay Science and other works. Uh -huh. I don't think he thought that it was going to be something bad or evil or terrible. Think about let's go back to Bender just for just a second here. Yes. If we have if we have just a second. We have the, either seven minutes or seventeen, depending on how long you want to stay on. Or I'll, forever. I'll stay on as long as you let me rave on. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> rave on. Please rave. It's the rave show with uh, okay. Bishop Allen Greenfield, please. Uh, are we going to a rave? Uh, I went to a couple of raves, and I was way too old for that sort of thing. But anyway, uh, what was I saying? <laughs> you were, you said you were going to talk about uh, – now, now I forgot. We were talking about the Ubermensch, and then you said you were going to – you were going to get back to Bender. Right. Okay. We have the Bender case, and it is generally considered to be dark – Dark aesthetics and uh, and negative and um, um, a visitation from either CIA agents out to scare him, which is not impossible, or much more likely he conjured something up from otherwhere and show it manifested as three men who gave him a gift and a word to call them back. Now, the reason the case is considered negative is not because of anything the three men in black did. They did nothing negative whatsoever. They gave him a gift, and they gave him a contact number, the equivalent of, you know, giving them, giving them his phone, their phone number, yeah. um, and uh, gave him some information. The reaction that he had is the only negativity that happened. It freaked him out. I'm not 
condemning the man for that. I think, you know, he was very young, living with his parents, uh, probably playing with this stuff uh, um, sort of in a uh, surreal manner. And yeah. it got very real for him and freaked him out. But in the end, we don't know that they that he conjured up something that was evil. He, he may have conjured up something that was trying to give him information that he interpreted as in in a negative manner that freaked him out and cl- caused him to close down his UFO group and establish that pattern of if you see uh, the men in black coming, it's a bad thing. Now, I'm not saying if the black-eyed children show up at your door and ask <laughs> across the threshold, you're letting the right one in. I would think about that like about 70 times, but uh, I'm, I, I, and I think that there, just as there is, uh, there are good things and bad things among human beings, there are good beings and bad beings among the manifestations that we uh, invoke. Sometimes yeah. it's other than what we intend to do. It depends how good we are at our craft um but uh um to assume that higher means negative is a bad notion and i i kind of like the early days of borderland research uh research associates which um was founded by mead lane in the mid-1940s and mead lane was both an occult initiate and interested in UFOs before even the term flying saucers was invented. Yes. And uh, he developed a circle of um, of mediums who were yeah. in contact with uh, with what were called the guardians, who were yeah. the protectors of the human race. Now, how literal yes. any of this is, I don't know. Who but knows? The point is, they were benevolent, and uh, the uh, the decoding of their names tends to validate. Both the, the the reality of the experience and that it, it had a positive rather than a negative uh, orientation, and I think that you know that that's because Mead Lane was both an occultist and a ufologist and was way ahead of his time. When uh, when when he passed on and Raleigh Crabb took over, it became a paranoid organization and has mm. changed hands several times since then. And I, as it is now, I have no problem with it. But it, uh, Mead Lane was, you know, one of the one of my great heroes and uh, is far less well known in the history of of all of these subjects than than he ought to be. I've yeah, he's a he's a footnote if people even know about him. Uh, yeah. Him and uh, Mark Probert and the other people he had in uh, in San Diego at the time. Right, exactly. San Diego is a is a key player uh, in that period. Oh, geez, I grew up in San Diego at least. Well, for, one of yeah. one of my sons is living in San Diego. What so, part? Yeah, the the my my son who uh, recently got out of the Navy and who was in harm's way for that a long time. That makes Is going through college, courtesy of the Navy, as I okay. understand. I'm very proud of him. Yeah. But um, uh, San Diego has has been a player. Uh, that was where the uh, where Parsons Parsonage was located. And uh, uh, as you pointed out, I mean, it's not that hard to go out to the Mojave if you're in that part of the country and are familiar with you know the the Tucson to San Diego route. Uh, getting out into the desert is just a matter of <laughs> having the guts to do it in the daytime, you know, so. Yeah, I thought the Parsonage was in, uh, I didn't know that he lived in San Diego. I thought the Parsonage was in Pasadena. Did he have another one? Uh, no, 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 no. It was in Pasadena, but that's, you know, that. Um, I, I think the group headquarters was in San Diego. 
Right, right. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. And of course, um, Adamski was located in basically northern San Diego County was when he was in Palomar. Yeah, and uh, and the uh, uh, the group that responsible for bringing the uh, New Eon English Kabbalah to this country, the QBLH, was headquartered in the San Di- the Greater San Diego area. I mean, oh, I didn't know that. And Catherine Tingley and her group were down there. And yeah, the, exactly. Yeah, so. A lot of uh, occult history during a period where there isn't a lot of occult history. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, that, that that's a period where it was very hard to be an occultist because that was between the uh, the occult revival at the turn of the 20th century and the trailing off before uh, World War II. Right. And then um, between that and the... Uh, uh, late 1960s, early 70s, when there were a new generation of occultists was generated, largely by Israel Regardi, who mm, reprinted mm-hmm. a lot of stuff and started publishing after a 30-year hiatus. Um, um, it uh, flowered and bloomed, and uh, it's again going into a period of uh, an aging public. Same is true in ufology. The same is true. Yeah, it's cyclical. All these things are cyclical. Yeah, um, I think there are there are good reasons for it. One of the things that the uh, UFO um, uh, National UFO Conference reunion that that came up was uh, um, uh, one of the one of the people there was complaining that uh, ufology is is uh, in sharp decline. I said, no. What's happened is UFOs have become part of the common culture of of the American people and to some extent of the human race. It's it's all over television. Hell, the X-Files are being revived, you know? I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's just um, – um, I've, I've done this host of programs on the History Channel that are UFO-related, including reluctantly ancient aliens because I, I, the, the title somehow I'm – you know, when you hit your late 60s, you're sensitive about titles like that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, that's, you know, the millions of people. And back in the day when I got started, yeah, there was, was dozens. There was Ray Palmer's Flying Saucer magazine and several thousand people that read Fate, and that's it. Yeah, that was, and then, a, then was, you know, like 300 people that, that uh, read uh, the Borderland Science thing or – the round robin and the you know the the international flying saucers bureau newsletter all that that probably amounted to two or three hundred people at the time oh for sure my newsletters i i am so happy i mean my friend rick hilberg gets out the i think is the last mosley's was the next to the last saucer smear which was sort of a satire magazine but mostly under it all was dead serious about it but uh yes uh, of course saucer smear Yes, it was I originally said, Saucer News. He was not allowed to use that name because Barker bought it from him, and then Palmer Publications bought it from them. And then the point is, he he decided to change the name, but keep the keep the the format. So for a while, he used words that rhymed with news. So yeah, there was Saucer one Blues, issue called so. Saucer Jews, dedicated to Steinberg and me, and then. <laughs> Saucer Cruise dedicated to the, the, you know, it was just, and he ran out of rhymes, so he, he switched it to Saucer Smear, and that was what he did for the last 20 some odd years of his life. The longest running UFO publication ever, I think. Yeah, if you count from the first issue of yeah. Nexus yeah. 
through saucer news, through saucer Jews, through saucer crews, <laughs> all the way to the last issue of Smear, which didn't do justice to the work. But he was already sick. He said, I'm going to start chemo. It's right down the block. And I, I said, Jim, consider alternative medicine because yeah. you don't know what. I know a little bit about chemo, and uh, yeah. uh, you're going to be very, very sick. But he ignored that, drank, drank it down, and uh, that's you know that last issue is probably should have been dressed up by someone. But um, yes. but it was, you know it was a long run, and uh, um, uh, Rick Hilberg still gets out a newsletter. Back in the day. I got out newsletters, and I was really happy if I had 300 subscribers. And when the Internet came along, and I was on it before it was an Internet, when it was still CompuServe, which was – Yeah, it was uh, news groups and uh, uh, bulletin boards. Bulletin boards. I realized, hey, I I don't have to collate or staple – or take this to the the offset print shop and pay for it. All I have to do – is posted on a BBS and I'm reaching hundreds of people. And then when the internet opened up, I said, every day I can reach thousands of people. And I do every day without fail, you know, rain shine. If I'm in town, the only time I ever uh, broached that was when I was out of the country. I tried to sign in and I was in Prague and they took me for a spy or something. So I had to prove that I was me and it took weeks to do it. So I was, my site went dark for weeks, but uh, because I was obviously a hacker, since I, anybody that signs in from Prague, ipso facto, is a hacker in in the uh, uh, Facebook universe, I guess. But uh, it's out there, and I have 5,000 subscribers on one site, and then the second site that I opened up while I was offline, by the time I got back online, had developed thousands of subscribers. The point being, that takes me about three hours a day. To get out a newsletter for a couple of hundred people took me a week because I had to do it all. You know, I had to uh, compose it, print it, collate it, staple it, address it, stamp it all manually. You know, put the return address on it, take it to the post office and put them in the mailbox, which, you know. I did that for a while. I had a magazine in the 90s. I was I was. uh I guess I was an idiot. I should have been using the computers. <laughs> should have been using the BBSs. But no, no, we printed up a magazine, had it printed, sent it out from 92 to 99. I, the last one I did was uh, a 1994, a, a final issue of uh, the Parayufologist, which was the name of the last uh, UFO-oriented publication that I did. I did some things for the OTO at that time, which are still up on their site, or at least they were until they heard this program. So, but uh, but um, those things have basically been, you know, they don't exist anymore except maybe as church bulletins or, you know, something like that. And that really is not necessary because you can find any of that on the Internet, and if you get it out enough, I mean, my original website, which – has been up since 1995, although, you know, the content has has varied somewhat. It's yeah. uh, had the same URL since 1995, huh. and it's been visited by hundreds of thousands of people. So, yeah. you know, that's that requires very little maintenance at all, and I farm that out because I'm an end user and not really, you know, skilled in the technical end of these things. So, um 
it's just amazing how much more you can do. It's still a drop in the bucket, but it's, it's, it's certainly getting out to a lot more people. And you have control. You have control of this program. You can edit out anything that I said, so it'll be about two-minute show, I figure. Uh, and uh, I'm keeping the whole thing, I'm sorry to say. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Go I'm going to disappoint you and say I'm keeping the whole thing, except for any pauses that are a little too long, and me saying, uh, and me saying I can't think of, um, yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one was, have you thought of the guy yet? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, 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 they knew too much about UFOs. Uh, three Men in Black. Ray Barker. No, not Barker. Uh, Albert K. Bender. Bender. Yes, yes. I said Bender earlier, and then I then I lost it again. Yes, Bender. I will leave that. I, I will take out the part where I can't. No, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to leave that in. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just trying. It just shows. I mean, we've hit hit on a lot of stuff here. I don't know if you realize it, and I don't know what's typical on your program, but my, we have hit on, yeah. you know. Typical the, the, on my program is I have, if I haven't interviewed somebody before, like you, I've got something like 20 questions. I never get through them all. I think I got through four. Well, that's what I sent you, four. Yeah, and it, <laughs> which, which means I you have to come back. I composed in real time and pressed the send button like a fool that I am. So. Yeah, which, which means you have to come back because we hardly got through anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, you know, I'm old, I'm retired, I'm on Social Security, and I'm on online. So uh, by all means, if you want to have me back, please do. And I'm sure that my thousands of fans who I plug this for are listening in. And if only they could have called in. How They never call in when I'm on. They're, they're always looking up words like well, quantum. It's be, yeah, well, see, Alan, I don't usually... Quantum, that must have something to do with James Bond, right? Because it was a James Bond movie, Quantum Solace. Yeah, Quantum yeah, of yeah, Solace. Right, yeah, right. Which I have no idea what that means, but, you know, uh, it's, it, it sounded a, cool. A little bit of of, a tiny of, little, teeny little bit of it, yeah. It means a story that Ian Fleming didn't write. <laughs> <laughs> I also but he's dead, like all these other people we're talking about, which is scary. You know, I keep saying my late friend, the late, uh, the late. Well, there, you know, some of us are still around, and some of us are going to be around for a very long time because we have the secret elixir. Yeah, who that did, stopped he, you? That stopped you cold. Yeah, well, I, I was trying to think of who said the. Uh, uh, most of my friends are dead or something. Wasn't that Yogi Berra or somebody? I can't well, he remember. he just died, but... The- <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> he can't say that anymore. <laughs> no, it, it, it was a famous quote, and I don't remember who it was. I think it was David Crosby who did a unacknowledged cameo, I believe, on, uh, on um, The Leftovers, which is one of my favorite uh, HBO uh, programs, which I was recording tonight because I usually watch like these really great shows on HBO and Showtime on Sunday night, but I, I generously let the DVR take care of that so that I could spend this time with you and your listeners because I've heard great things about them. Like they're all wacko and they're all into grave robbers from outer space. And yes, I figure they are. They that's, are. That's it. You know, those are people that actually might be able to, you know. And they're all 30 IQ points higher than the normal population on average. Well, then they're not eligible to be president of the United States That's right. or policeman. Can't be a cop and be thirty points above. They, oh God, they, no! You have to uh, be. You have to be at least. I think it's got to be in the single digits, preferably down near fifty. <laughs> <laughs> but you got to be a good shot. Yeah, <laughs> and quick, quick on the trigger. You, uh, in fact, I, I wonder if gun control shouldn't begin 
with the police. You yeah. know, the yeah. cops, the regular cops in England don't carry guns, and maybe we should teach them really, really good uh, karate and, you know, that sort of thing, and give them all the tasers that they want, two tasers per cop, you know, and, yeah. and, a, and a billy club, and put them out on the street, and if they don't have the guts to do, to do it on that basis, well, they're, they're not eligible, and just keep the, the, the arms for, like, you know, a hostage situation or something when they bring in the SWAT SWAT. Because they are way too quick on the trigger. Gosh, we have now covered. <laughs> now we're into an gun area control. That I don't want to get into because I live in a, an area where that has a suburban police department, which you're, I love. They're, yeah, they're, you're gonna you're yeah. you're gonna. There's they're gonna be a knock on your door guys. pretty soon. They're they're guys. I'm sounding sounding like Trump now. They're terrific guys. They're great guys. They're guys that you would like to have on your team when you become president. <laughs> And by the way, let me use this occasion to announce my availability for Speaker of the House. I'm not a Republican, but I can play one in the Congress. I think you. I think you do a really good job because you've been able to. You've uh, answered every question I've thrown at you. The problem is that you've answered it directly. You didn't answer the question that you wanted to answer. You answered them directly. So I don't know how well you're going to do with that. Uh, I take the Lyndon Johnson approach. Most of the good stuff is done behind the scenes with a little arm twisting and, yes. uh, you know, you get, you get things done that way. But. Yeah. Well, see, the thing about Lyndon Johnson is he knew how he's to, dead too. Yeah. He, he knew how to play politics. Whether you agree with him or not, he did things. He was a political animal. The people that are doing things now are not political animals. The, the loudest ones anyway, the ones you hear about, they're children, and they argue about things like children. They don't know how to get things done in a political process, and it's everything grinds to a halt, and people just start throwing things at each other. Well, you don't have to be a member of Congress to be Speaker of the House, and That's I'm true. certainly of age, and I promise that I will use every dirty trick in the book to get those guys whipped into line. Okay, I'll well appoint then, a I, whip. I will, I will we'll s- actually have a whip. Yeah. <laughs> Crack that whip. <laughs> you don't want to pass a budget? This is a country, man. Crack that whip. Okay, got the votes now. Oh, I'm sorry about the eye. Yeah. Uh, okay, now we're over two hours, and we will continue this at some uh, very, very uh, soon-to-be-announced date. But everybody I have on the sh- and I thank you so much, uh, Alan, for being on the show. And You've for- already forgotten my name. See how quickly they forget. Yeah. Well, you well have I remember Gray Barker speaking. and uh, and uh, Mosley and, uh, and the other guy that uh, wrote... Uh- <laughs> Yes, and the, the other guy. Alive. The yeah. living guy, you can't remember. It's only the dead ones who were my friends. I've never met Bender or never seen him. Yeah, I've, I was thinking some when Nick Redfern was here, we were going to go over to his house and knock on his door. But, you know, I think it's it'd be very rude to go over and bug him at this point about anything to do with the saucers. I think he would he he might have a heart attack. And drop dead, and, and then you've got a real story that you're going to have to defend in court. But uh, uh, <laughs> you could, you know, just put a note and some flowers or something, you know, and say if you'd like to, to talk uh, on the record, off the record, whatever, as background. Uh, uh, I'd sure want to get it off my chest, uh, you know. Um, mm, I yes. guess he's in his 80s. In, yeah. the 1920s. No, he's in his, probably in his 90s now. Well, then maybe he's, you know, uh, in, you know, well, there are people in their 90s. Yogi Berra was 
92, and I think he went out on his famous line, you got to go to other people's funerals so they'll come to yours. Yes. <laughs> Which I really want on his tombstone. You know, I think that's really appropriate. There, there, that would be a great one. Uh, I have a tradition here, Alan, of having the guest pick a piece of music to uh, exit the show with. And as long as I can f- either have it or I can find it on YouTube, I'll do it. Well, I was going to sing a medley of Al Jolson hits, but... Go right uh, ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, most of them are not politically correct these days, unfortunately. But, yeah, you uh, have to start out with Mammy, and then that's you're already yeah. you're, you're already in trouble. So I did that to annoy a DJ at a, um, a, a Nacrocon that I was trying to hustle people for something or other, and, and the DJ... Uh, so I, the way I annoyed him, because he was interfering with another event was to do my rendition of Mammy complete. And I did the <laughs> whole thing down on one knee at the end. and With your hands and out. and Unknown to me, he had a camera on. And somewhere on the Internet, my performance is good, but it's certainly not PC. And it's out there somewhere. So that guy, I don't know who he was, but uh, he certainly knew how to repost me. So. Yeah, well, see, you're 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 allowed to. You see, your excuse is that Al Jolson Al Jolson was Jewish, so it's okay. Uh, well, actually, yeah. Well, you know, my excuse is my father would gun the Lincoln 120 miles an hour all the way to Florida, singing uh, Jolson and Eddie Cantor songs at the top of his lungs. <laughs> and they're, they're embedded in my soul forever because I'd be laying down in the back seat trying to shut it out. But no, no. And he was going, how oh, I love you. How oh, I love you. My dear old son. Yeah. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Play the Jefferson Airplane, please. <laughs> See, I was okay. about to type in Al Jolson. White Rabbit. Huh? White, Rab- White Rabbit. Okay. White, White Rabbit, um, Jefferson Airplane. Right. Okay. Summer of Love, the summer of the great UFO convention. All right, Alan, thanks so much, and I will be in touch with you about uh, coming on again, because like I said, we didn't get through hardly anything, even though it seems like we went through everything. Well, I'm here, and would love to do it again. Okay. Well, thanks again. Here's uh, here's White Rabbit. Can you hear it? I can hear it. Okay. Well, uh, if you want to hang up, fine. If you want to hear it, stay on. I- I'm going to listen and then hang up. Okay. Walk on. Now you're playing Jimi Hendrix with the feedback. One yeah, that's it. Makes you larger, and one pill makes you small. And the ones that mother gives you 